Good morning, my name is John, one of the pastors here. It's really an honor to join you in your home on this Shelter at Home Sunday morning. Uh, we have seen a lot in the last week or so on, pub, on human interest stories on the news or on social media of all the cool things that are going on, the clever ideas we're doing to take care of being at home and not being able to get out. But we don't see a lot about the conflict and the struggles and trying to figure out how mom and dad are going to work from home and three kids are going to go to school from home and have the home office used and be able to get all that we need. And we didn't realize it at the time, but we had planned on doing a couple of application messages beginning today for the Undivided series, and today was going to be on how to handle offenses when we're offended by one another. And next week is going to be how to deal with conflict. So we're just going to go ahead and go down that path. And I think it's very timely for us as we have some extra pressures that we are facing in our lives today. But being offended is not something new. In fact, our culture is obsessed with being offended. It seems like the 24-hour news stream, social media, everyone having an opinion that's valid, everyone having an opinion that they need to express has given us a chance to be offended like never before. And in fact, it's become something of a merit badge to wear to be offended. I remember one a comedian actually had in his sketch the, uh, the phrase, I'm actually offended that you're offended by what I just said. And that happens in real life, doesn't it? It's like we take offense that someone is actually offended by something we said or did as though there's some kind of an infinite loop of offense that just continues and continues. And that's really the casualty of being offended, the casualty of the way we're dealing with it in our lives today. And the casualty is that there's really no dialogue. There's no dialogue at all. As soon as I'm offended, as soon as I've been hurt, as soon as you've wounded me by something you've done or said, the conversation is over, there's no trust, judgment has been made, and that's the end of the story. There's no turning back. I think we're going to have a different picture as we walk through Scripture today. If you want to follow in your own language, and English is not your primary language, you could go to efree.org slash translate, and there you can find a translation for you in your own language. And you could also use your YouVersion Bible app, and that will walk through the Scriptures, and I'll be uh, using various Scripture passages today as we talk and tie together how to, how to deal with offense, how to deal with it when we bump into each other in our homes, in our families, in our church, and in our community today. Uh, next week, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about conflict. How do we resolve conflict with one another? I don't want to lose sight of the Undivided series that we've been going through. So remember the four buckets, the buckets of dogma, doctrine, conviction, and preference. That's the context within which we're looking at how we deal with offense in our community. So I hope to answer, or partially answer at least, three questions today. One is, what does it mean when I'm offended by something that someone does or someone says? Second, what does the Bible say about how to handle an offense when I am offended? And third, what should I do when I'm offended? I'm going to start with just generally what psychologists tell us about offense. They, they categorize offense as a self-conscious emotion. And by that I mean, uh, and it's like, guilt or pride or shame, there's a level of self-reflection, a level of self-awareness that's required for me to be offended by something, just as there's a level of self-awareness or self-consciousness that's required for me to have guilt or shame over something. This is contrasted with basic emotions like anger or surprise or fear. When something happens and I respond in fear, it's an instinct. 
I don't need much cognitive processing. And this is important because it points to a really important fact that we're going to have throughout this message, and that is when I'm offended by something, I'm bringing something to that situation more than when I'm afraid of something. There are ways that my cognitive processes are coming into play. There was an article in a January 18 psychology journal that described how feeling offended is a blow to our image, a blow to our self-image, and it's a blow to our relationships. And I want to unpack this a a little bit before we get into Scripture, because I think those concepts tie into how the Bible paints a picture of what offense is and how we should deal with it. It would be really nice if every time I'm offended, every time I'm hurt by something someone does or says, every time someone sins against me, I'm 100% objective in the way I view it. And the evidence is clear that they were 100% in the wrong and I was 100% in the right. But that's not the real world. Instead, whenever I'm offended, I'm bringing something to that situation. Whether it's my self-image that I want to be honored, I want to appear knowledgeable, I want to appear competent, I want to appear likable, I want to be respected, I want to be valuable. I'm bringing that to whatever happened or didn't happen that I'm offended by. I found it interesting that in this secular journal, this psychology journal, they had this sentence, preserving a good self-image and a self-image are among the most important goals that a person has. It's a means of gaining adoption. Don't lose that. A piece of, it's not everything, but a piece of being offended by something that someone did or someone said is my desire to be accepted, my desire to belong, my desire to experience something that's positive. And you, at this moment, with whatever you did or didn't do, or I perceive you did or didn't do, is threatening that for me. You might already be wondering or considering where this is going. How does my identity, value, my worth in Christ coincide with the confidence that I ought to have in my identity? And it might also be the case that every person is created in God's image, and therefore we have a baseline of worth and value. So when something happens to wound that, our response is naturally to be wounded, to be offended. That explains the morality and ethics that we see in taking an offense. And that's across the board in all cultures. If, for example, you were parachuted into the deepest jungles of Papua New Guinea, and you came across a tribe, a group of people that had no exposure with human civilization at all, and you walked up to one of the villagers, and you pushed him down, and you took his walking stick, and you ran off with it, my hunch is he would be offended by that. Because there's something about human honor and human dignity that we all carry. It goes against worth and value when someone wounds us because we're created in God's image. The other factor in this article was on the social relationships that come into play when we're offended. There's a relational connection in the impact of offensive words, of offensive behavior. This is why we're sometimes not offended by things that are blatantly offensive to us. For example, pharmaceutical advertisements that you see on TV are clearly offensive to our intelligence. They're clearly offensive to our worth and value. Think about it with me. If this drug was actually the wonder drug that it's portrayed as on this commercial, wouldn't my doctor, if he or she is slightly competent, be aware of it from medical journals and from the research that's going on? 
And if in my doctor's office I suggest that I take a medicine because I saw it on a commercial and my doctor, based on my recommendation from seeing it on a commercial, prescribes that to me, I think I should find a new doctor. But I'm not offended by that because I have no relationship with that. It doesn't really affect my value. It's just advertising and marketing. Or another example, a few years ago, when I finished preaching here at First Free, a visitor to our church came up to me. I know that because he introduced himself and said, I'm a visitor here, just visiting town this week, and I wanted to talk to you about your sermon. And he went on to critique my message and give me two or three things that I said that, in his opinion, were blatantly wrong and mistakes. But because there was no relationship, I was quick to dismiss his comments. Now, there are some people whose criticism of a message might hit home and might truly bother me because I want to be a good preacher and because I have a valued relationship. So all that to preface where we're going here, and I want to prime the pump a little bit for the rest of the message. I want you to think about something that's going on in your life right now, recently, maybe this last week, maybe in the last month, where you have been offended, wounded, or hurt by something someone else has done, or by something they said, or maybe by something they didn't do or didn't say. Think about that situation. Or if you're having trouble coming up with some, some, I'll give you a generic experience that's common to a lot of people, and it might help to set the stage for what's going on here today. Let's say a relative in a difficult predicament comes to you with a problem. And you listen and you give him a few suggestions for action steps that he can take to alleviate the problem and the predicament that he's in. He thanks you and goes on his way, but he puts nothing into practice of what you've said. He totally ignores your advice. But after several months of continuing in the turmoil and maybe even digging a deeper hole in the problems that he's dealing with, he talks to another friend. And that other friend gives him the exact same advice and counsel that you gave him. And this time he follows it and he finds relief. That's what I'm talking about. The offense, the woundedness. You didn't listen to me. You asked me for my opinion and you obviously didn't really care about it. And then you listened to someone else and you did that. So whatever the situation is you're thinking about in offense, carry that with you as we sort through what part is ours in being offended and what part is the other person's? Peter gives us a good principle to cling to in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. In this section, he's urging servants to submit to God above all of their human masters, their human authorities. And he gives instructions that are helpful for us in our relationship today. So look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 with me. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, and that's the key here that I want to pull out, you patiently endure unjust treatment. God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. See, when we're wounded or offended, we should be mindful of God's big story. This is actually very timely in our current crisis. When we're wounded or offended, we should be confident and mindful of the bigger story that's going on of what God is doing. In John Calvin's words, he said, Know that the daggers that others throw your way will become in God's hand the chisels to fashion you into the image of Christ. The daggers that others throw your way, whether it's people, the culture, the situation, circumstances in your life, will become in God's hands the chisels 
to fashion you into the image of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that God authors everything that happens to us. If someone lies to you, God didn't author that lie. If someone steals for you, God's not responsible for that theft. But I think the life of Joseph gives us a good picture here. I want to remind you in the big, big scope of Joseph's life of what this principle is, of how we see the bigger picture even when we're wounded. Joseph's father, Jacob, gave preference to Joseph over his brothers, and this contributed to a huge rift in his family. Joseph was the firstborn to Rachel, favorite for Jacob. He made a special robe for Joseph, and one that was quite significant of his favorite position. And this is telling because this robe that Jacob gave to his son Joseph had immediately a positive impact. It caused Joseph to feel valued, but it had long-term negative impact because his brothers hated him, and it led to a lot of problems in his life. And then there are other circumstances in Joseph's life that have immediate negative impacts, but long-term positive consequences. In the story of Joseph, one day when his brothers and he were taking care of their sheep, they decided it would be an opportune time to get rid of him. Some of the brothers actually wanted to kill Joseph. One spoke up and said, let's not kill him. They threw him in a cistern. There was a band of travelers that were coming past, and they thought, why don't we sell him? So he was sold as a slave, and this band of travelers went to Egypt where they sold him to Potiphar, an official in Pharaoh's kingdom. In that position, he was charged with a crime that he didn't commit. He was imprisoned, and in prison he interpreted dreams for some government officials who were also inmates. One of them, after release, spoke favorably of Joseph. This led to Joseph becoming the chief advisor to Pharaoh, a position of great influence and power in that entire region. And through this influence that Joseph had, Egypt amassed great, great surpluses of grain and resources in a time of drought. And then Jacob and his family needing some food, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to get food. And that's where they came encounter with their brother Joseph without knowing it. The climax of the story in Genesis 45, when Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers, and they were terrified, the scripture said, They were terrified when they realized that they were at the mercy of this brother who they had sold into slavery and lied about to their father, saying he was dead, that he had been killed by wild animals. From anyone's perspective, Joseph was wronged by almost everyone in his life and had every reason, humanly speaking, to be bitter and to seek revenge. But in Genesis 45, verse 8, Joseph said to his brothers, So it was God who sent me here, not you. He is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. And later when their father died and the brothers were once again afraid that Joseph might seek revenge for all of their evil deeds, he was mindful of God's overarching story. He looked not at the offense but at the big story of God in Genesis 50 verses 19 through 21. He said, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I should punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Now that is not to say that what they did was noble or what they did was righteous 
or that their sin was anything other than sin. Nor does it mean that necessarily Joseph liked it or every moment of that path. He was happy. There were times, obviously, where Joseph was puzzled, was in pain. He, he was angry, I would imagine, about the circumstances that he was in. But he kept this overarching perspective of what God was doing in his story. So our first principle is whenever we're wounded or offended, we should be mindful of God's big story. The next principle of how to deal with offense is when we are wounded or offended, we overlook all that we can. We overlook all that we can. Look at Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. In this, in this proverb, the writer makes an analogy between managing your temper, controlling the response when you're angry, and letting go of offenses. And he says that sensible people earn respect by doing this. This ties into what we started with, because you can't ex escape the implication that at some level, being offended is a personal choice. Being offended is a personal choice. Now, that choice might be influenced by our past. It might not just be in this moment. It might be our self-image. It might be how we trust in God. But it's nonetheless a choice because we are, we are making decisions based on circumstances that have happened to us or have not happened to us and how we are going to respond to them. The choice isn't just what's happening in the moment. But are we believing that we are going to get our worth and value from Christ and not in how others treat us. A couple of important clarifications on this proverb, because I think it could be misapplied. This proverb does not mean what we are overlooking is insignificant. It does not mean that we just, the minor things we let go. No, it means that if someone has truly wounded us, and there's truly an offense that we have felt, we have, by the power of God in us, the, the ability and the capability and the indwelling spirit to empower us to actually release that person from the obligation of paying for that crime against us. To the contrary, it's a valid wound, and we let it go. We don't react in kind. We can actually overlook an offense without having that transactional process that we so often need. Second, some of you might think you do really well at overlooking offenses when you really just deny everything. Denial is not the same as overlooking an offense. Denial is just pretending that something didn't happen when it actually did. But overlooking an offense is taking very seriously the wound and yet not holding that person accountable Instead, it's giving charitable judgment, assuming that that other person who hurt you, who did something or didn't do something that wounded you, didn't intentionally set out to disappoint you, to criticize you, to sin against you. And when you do this, it leaves room for mercy. It leaves room for God's grace. It leaves room for the offender to possibly understand his or her actions, even without discussing it sometimes. This should be our aim in every moment, to overlook offenses whenever we can. Don't we want that for other people? It would be so hard if everyone pointed out every single thing we did wrong that might have offended or hurt them. The true test of whether we have successfully overlooked an offense is very simple. 
It's if when you see that person again, you still have that knot in your stomach or you still have that thought in your mind of what they did. We're going to get into next week how we actually deal with those things in a transactional way. But for today, we need to look at our own hearts and ask the question, what am I bringing to that offense? Am I clinging to something that by God's grace and mercy, I could actually just let go of and not hold them accountable for? The third principle that we should embrace is when we're wounded or offended, we remember that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. It's one of the most powerful principles in the New Testament for us to embrace. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in the earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then again, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you died to this life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, when I say we remember that we no longer live, I'm not just implying that we have a cognitive memory or we, we recite a Bible verse that we've remembered. No, I mean we, we actually remember with our mind and our soul, and we experience the, the forgiving work of Jesus Christ in our lives that set us free from our sin has given us forgiveness, has given us salvation, has given us new life, and that Christ actually lived for us and died for us as a substitute. So, so the person you see today is not me, it's Christ who lives in me. No one has ever offended or hurt me. No one has ever sinned against me anywhere close to the way I've sinned against or offended God. And yet God forgives me. God accepts me through the blood of Christ. Practice this statement, if you would. You cannot insult, offend, or sin against me anywhere close to the measure of how I insulted, offended, and sinned against God, and yet he forgives and loves me. You cannot insult, offend, or sin against me anywhere close to the measure of how I insulted, offended, and sinned against God, and yet he has forgiven and loves me. That's the principle, that's the heart um, motivation of understanding that we've died and Christ lives in us. When that becomes a reality in our experience, that makes a difference in the way we interact with people when they do things that hurt us, when they do things that offend us. All of a sudden, we don't have that response that we had when it was all about our identity, when it was all about our self-image, when it was all about our worth and value because that's been decided in Christ the story is told of a 4th century Coptic Christian monk in Egypt. His name was Abba Macarius. Someone came to him with a question. Abba, give me a word that I might be saved. So the old man said to him, go to the cemetery and abuse the dead. This brother went there. He abused them. He cursed at the graves that were in front of him. He threw stones at them. He said horrible things. To those who were buried. And then he went back and he told Abba Macarius what he did. And he said, did they say anything back to you? He replied, no. And the old man said, go back tomorrow and praise them. So this man went back to the cemetery and he praised them. He gave them all kinds of praise, calling them apostles and saints and righteous men and complimenting them. He returned to the old man and said, I've done that. And the old man said, did they answer you? 
And he shook his head, no. And Abba Macarius said to him, you know how you insulted them and they did not reply? And how you praised them and they did not speak? If you wish to be saved, you must do the same and become like a dead man. Here's a phrase that I want want you to capture. Like the dead, take no account of either the scorn of men nor their praises. The dead take no account of either the scorn of men or their praises. That's how you find salvation. What an incredible principle. And that's a theme throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. It's described sometimes as the struggle of the inner man, of whether we are going to live in faith that we have actually died and Christ lives in us, or are we going to continue to resurrect that old man inside of us, which, which responds because we need to find an identity and a worth and value apart from Jesus Christ. So in closing, I just want to give you four steps that we can take in responding to offenses. The first is honestly acknowledge when we're hurt or when we're offended. Leave room for our own desire and our own influence of being offended. The second step is rest in the identity and the life that we have in Jesus Christ, not responding out of our own flesh. The third step, choose to extend charitable judgment toward others, and whenever possible, overlook an offense. The fourth is extend forgiveness, acknowledging the big story and trusting God to turn every circumstance, every circumstance, into something that will be for my ultimate good and His glory. Big takeaway for me in talking about offense is that whenever we're wounded, beat up, sinned against, slandered, the first and most important step we can do is to let that offense that we've received be a mirror, a mirror through which we see our own hearts. In Psalm 101, the writer is calling out to God when he's being slandered, lied against, faithless people are creating all kinds of perverse plans against him, tearing him down. He does pray that God would vindicate him, but it's not his first prayer. His first prayer is to commit himself to living a life of blamelessness and trust. Listen to these beginning words in Psalm 101. I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with songs. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? I will lead a life of integrity in my home. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. Before he gets to them, he looks inside and says, God, help me to live a blameless life. Help me to live a life of integrity in my own home, even as I'm being offended by people around me. It's a good word for us today, especially as we bump into each other and we receive wounds from what people do and say who are very close to us. Let's practice trusting in God. Let's practice committing ourselves to Him and by His power, by His Spirit, live lives of blameless integrity before Him and before one another. Let's pray. God, it's really important for us to understand that we have something to do with being offended, that we bring something to those situations where we take offense. It might be needing self-worth outside of what you've given to us, and please forgive us for that. It might be caring for a relationship and putting a relationship at a place of an idol so that we, we so value what other people think that we can't imagine they could say or think something ill of us. 
We pray right now that you would help us in our homes and our families going through the, the crisis that we're going through right now and even in the bigger picture of our relationships to be men and women, young people and children who see the big picture, who overlook offenses and who live out that truth that it's no longer us who live but Christ who lives in us. And in doing so, we pray that we would show unity and love for one another and glorify you. Amen.